we're going to talk about evangelism. Evangelism! Ah! What is evangelism? What is evangelism? Evangelism is, is really the, the New Testament word to proclaim the gospel, okay? And, and we are told to do that. In fact, we're not told to do that. We're commanded to do that by Jesus. At the end of almost every one of the gospels, we're commanded. In the book of Acts, the last time he's with his disciples, right before the ascension, he says, uh, but you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and in the uttermost part of the earth. In the book of Matthew, we have the Great Commission. Again, Jesus' final words in that gospel to the disciples. He says, all authority is given unto me. Go make disciples. Unfortunately, when we hear the word evangelism, a lot of times we, it, it brings a negative emotion. And if you don't know the word evangelism, it means, to, again, to share or to give away your faith. The sermon title today is One Life to Give. How do we give that away which God has given to us? And so that's what I want to talk with you about because I believe there are different ways to do it. Uh, there's no one right way to do it, and you may be good at more than one way to do it. In the New Testament, I know of at least three ways. One is called proclamational evangelism. Say that, proclamational evangelism. That means to proclaim the news about Jesus. Okay? And that's a good method in the early part of the book of Acts. It's used often. Acts chapter 2, you remember Peter gets up uh, after the Holy Spirit comes and he preaches to thousands of people and 3,000 people want to believe in Jesus. And the first church is there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Uh, in our culture, as I was a boy growing up, Billy Graham was the best example of that. It goes on in a lot of churches today. Uh, Jesus uses this approach when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, the, the, one of the downsides is that it seems to take a, a natural ability and a spiritual giftedness to do this, and only about 1 or 2% of the people are good at it. In fact, uh, although I don't mind getting up and talking about my faith, I, when they do surveys and they ask what is the hardest job to have, public speaking is always near the top of the hardest job list. So a lot of people aren't good at or comfortable with proclamational evangelism, although it certainly is a valid way and people do come to faith as a result of that. There's another methodology in the New Testament called confrontational evangelism. Say confrontational evangelism. Confrontational evangelism. I don't mean confrontation in the sense I'm going to beat you up if you don't believe. This is not I'm going to beat you over the head with my Bible approach. But this is the approach taken in Acts chapter 8 where Philip uh, was told by God to, uh, to meet with this stranger. He was an Ethiopian eunuch driving down the road and reading his Bible and Philip approached him, a complete stranger, and said, do you understand what you're reading? And in the process of that conversation, uh, Philip got to lead the Ethiopian to faith. Uh, in the book of John, Jesus does this with uh, both Nicodemus in John 3 and in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Campus Crusade is the modern-day version of that, although there are many, many others. In fact, uh, some of the guys that helped lead me to Christ back in 1969 were very involved with Campus Crusade. Uh, and so we know how effective that is. In fact, how many of you have had your life touched in some way by Campus Crusade? Uh, they've actually changed the name now to Crew, as I understand. Uh, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a valid method. It works, and it's uh, usually much better, my experiences, with younger people than with older people. Uh, but about 10% of the population feels good about that. Uh, I remember uh, years ago I had breakfast with uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy. He was the founder of a thing called Evangelism Explosion. EE was the largest, and still to this day, I think, is the largest evangelism program used in all kinds of churches across the world. 
and they were 25 years old at the time as a mission, and I said, Dr. Kennedy, because you did never call him Jim, Dr. Kennedy, after you've been doing this for 20, 25 years, what's your greatest frustration? Oh, he said, that's an easy one. Only, only 10 or 15% of our own people do this. So if only 1% one, one or 2% are comfortable with proclamational and uh, 10% or maybe 12% are, are good at confrontational evangelism, what else is there? And what happens is a lot of people who love Jesus really are not comfortable with sharing their faith. So today I want to give you another model. We call it relational evangelism. Uh, Paul uses it, especially in the latter part of his ministry. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, I came and lived among you. I treated you like a mother who nurses her child, like a father who teaches his children. Uh, in the book of uh, 1 John 1, 4, Jesus walks among his disciples. Uh, Young Life does that. Do you know what Young Life is? One of the best and probably my favorite high school ministry is Young Life. And their goal is to build relationships with kids, and they use this phrase, and win the right to share our faith with them. Uh, I've been doing this for 30 years under the umbrella of search ministries, and back in April, Gwen and I incorporated a new ministry called 7117 uh, Ministries, and our focus is, hey, let's help people to make friends and hopefully see their friends come to faith. The good news is 70 or 90% of us have the ability to do this because it's not nearly as intimidating. And so that's what I want to focus on today. Somebody's asked, well, why did you start 7117 Ministries? It was real easy. We, we turned 62, <laughs> and we started to be able to get Social Security. Uh, and when you get Social Security, you can only earn 1200 bucks a month. And the old ministry search didn't have a way to make that happen. So we're still doing the same stuff that we've done here for over 30 years. We're just doing it under our own uh, local umbrella. If you'd like to know more about 7117 Ministries, we do a newsletter. comes out every month in hard copy and in email. There's copies in the back on the bulletin board out back or the blackboard. It is actually a blackboard. Uh, and also uh, we do it by, by email. And if you'd like to get that, it's free, but we would ask that if you get it, you, uh, you commit to pray for us because we keep in touch with our friends and our, and our supporters that way. That's how we raise our funds. And on the front of every newsletter is an article about our family. And on the back of every newsletter is a practical way that you can do relational evangelism. Uh, if you'd like to get it in, in an easy way, just when you, when you look at the connection card, put on there Ed Diaz newsletter and they will get it to us. And we're happy to send it to you. Uh, and we'd love for you to, uh, to do that. But I think it's important that we learn uh, to do this. Be, and here's why. When they do surveys about how did people come to faith, how did people come to believe in Jesus, uh, there are about eight different ways that, that it happened. Let me just read those to you. And to do that, I'm going to use my hippy-dippy reading glasses because that's what happens when you're 62. Oh, hi. Some people just walked in. They said, hey, I'm going to go to church. Just They're called walk-ins, okay? Any of you walk-ins? Just went to church one Sunday and thought it was a good thing to do and came to faith. Good. We're thankful for that. That's great. It's a great way. Another way is uh, you were influenced by a particular pastor. How many of you feel like, again, apart from God's leading, humanly speaking, there was a pastor who was directly responsible for your, for your faith in Jesus? How many? Okay, very good. Quite a number in this group. Normally that's 1% to 2% in these surveys. Uh, how about a church program? They were either running a soccer program or a Sunday school outreach thing, and, and you got involved in a, in a program for, for your kids. How many have come to faith that way? Good. That's usually a bigger number, 4 to 6%. Uh, visitation efforts. 
is a big one, where people come and knock on your door after you visited a church or maybe if you haven't. Anybody come to faith that way? Uh, yeah, 1% to 2% is, is about right. Uh, Sunday school programs, we don't have a formal one here except for the kids, but 2 to 4% of the population in churches come that way. Uh, evangelistic crusade or television program, anybody come to faith that way? It, it, it runs about 0.001%. So it's about 1 in 10,000. Not that that's not important. I'm just saying what works. Uh, some people come as a result of a special need, but 70 uh, to 90% of people who know Jesus usually say the way that God worked in my life was through a friend or loved one. Now, if that's the case, let's learn how to do that well because almost all of us have the ability to make a friend. If you're involved at all with uh, the Curcio or the Emmaus Walk movement, uh, you know, they have a whole talk in their weekend. It, it's, it's basically how to make a friend and be a friend and win a friend to Christ. And so we want to be intentional with our friendships. We're not out to manipulate anybody, but we want to be able to do this in a biblical and loving and caring way. One of the reasons I love TVA is because a, a lot of times we get this right. So they've asked me to share about that today, and that's what I'm going to do. It's really, uh, that's our ministry, that's our email. If, if you ever need us, we're downtown, we're moving our office this week. You know where Mitchell's Coffee Shop is? I'm going to be right upstairs from that. It's going to be very hard to sm smell like good coffee all day. I'm going to give you three steps today that we have used over 30 years to do this, and I think you will find that you can do this. And that's our goal, is to be relational and love people, and hopefully in the end they get, they get to come to Jesus. The first thing is to remember this. One person is important. Say that with me. One person is important. In the book of Luke, Jesus tells a parable about the lost sheep. It says, so he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost? How long? Read that again. Until he finds it. Some of you know my son, Matty our baseball guy, and when he was three, he went to Sunday school class one time. We were coming home from church, and I said, Maddie, what'd you learn today? Well, Maddie had a little speech issue. He couldn't say his L's or his R's. He said, I warned about the wasp wham. I said, really, what'd you learn? He said, well, there was, there was a shepherd with a bunch of sheep, and one went out for a walk, and he got washed. And I said, really, what happened then? He said, well, he whooked, and he whooked, and he whooked, and he whooked for the, for the lost wham, and he and he walked in Goldilocks' house, and it wasn't there. And he looked in the three bells. We've been reading that during the week. It wasn't there. And, and, and then he looked in a twee, and there he was stuck in the twee. They had a little cartoon where the lamb was stuck in a bush. Now, his information was not 100% right, but his theology was good. See, what is God like? God is like a shepherd that has one lost sheep. And he looks, and he looks, and he looks, and he looks until he finds you. One is important to God. And, and again, I'm not picking on anybody, but a lot of churches get really concerned about keeping the 99 comfortable. And God, I believe, in his heart, shows that he's more interested in the one that is lost because it's a wonderful thing when that happens. Verse 5, when the shepherd finds it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. The first thing that happens, there's personal joy. There is nothing more fun than seeing somebody you care about give their life to Christ, is there? In fact, there's probably nothing more important that you can do. Unlike me, you know, if I was the shepherd and I had one lost sheep and I went out for hours in the desert and found it, I'd beat the heck out of that sheep. You stupid sheep, get up there. No, he carries it on his shoulders. Rejoicing. The first thing in the parable is there is personal joy. Second is collective joy. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice 
with me, for I have found my sheep which is lost. One of the reasons it's fun to come here to church on Sunday is because we regularly see people who are lost sheep coming to Jesus, and that's exciting as a body. It's corporately fun. There's personal joy, there's corporate joy, and then here's the most important joy. Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy where? In heaven, over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now that flies in the face of traditional Jewish thought at the time of Jesus, and to this day there's actually a prayer in the Jewish Talmud that says this, there is joy in the presence of God when those who provoke him perish from the earth. No, that's not what God is like. God is interested in the one who is lost. And for most of us, there was somebody that God used to help us understand that Jesus came and died in our place so that we didn't have to suffer death eternally from God. Remember, one person is important. Who does God bring along your path that you can love with God's love? You know, people aren't projects. We're not loving them just to share our faith. We're loving them because God made them and he put them in our life. You find these people in four different places. You find them in your family. Now, they're hard to love, aren't they? You know, let me tell you about my mother-in-law. Remember Henny, Henny Youngman? Take my mother-in-law, please. <laughs> but there are people in your family that we're not sure where they are spiritually. And so our job is to love them. There are people in your neighborhood. Now again, it's a different country than the one I grew up in. I knew everybody in every house for two or three blocks. But maybe you're in a neighborhood like that and, and you come across those people. And God would have you just love them. You find them at work. They're your co-workers. Are there people that you work with that don't have any kind of a spiritual clue or they're concerned or they're confused or maybe they're in a cult? You know, our job is to love them. And then there are people in your leisure world. If you do something in your leisure world, you find these people. If you play golf, maybe they're playing golf. If you play tennis, maybe they're playing tennis. If you're in a band, maybe they were in the band. You know, they, they could be in school, they could be out to eat, they could be all over. And so our job is to keep our antenna up and say, oh God, when you lead one of these lost sheep into my life, I want to be aware and I want to love them with your love. Now, when I start to care about somebody like that, there are two principles that I need to remember. The first is that coming to Jesus is usually a what? Process. Say that word, process. Jesus mentions it in John 4. He says, for in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. Coming to Jesus, for not all but most people, is a process. My wife and I were married 41 years ago last month. Now, let me tell you, it was a process. I met my wife when I was 20 years old, at a banquet. She had on this cute little purple skirt on, let me tell you. And uh, I was a new believer, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to be honest, there was nothing spiritual about this. I just said, I want to sit next to those legs. And so I made a decision to sit next to her at this banquet, and over the course of the meal, I made another decision to ask her out. And I took her out. It was, she was pretty cool. And so I made another decision to ask her out again, and over a few weeks I made a decision to date her exclusively. And then I wanted her to meet my family, so they had been moving, living in Lakeland for a while, and so I, I brought her down here for a, a week during that summer, after our, after our uh, second year of college, 
And uh, we were driving down Florida Avenue having a major fight. Major fight. She was in my grill, and I was in her face, and we were just... And there used to be a drive-in theater. That's for you you young people. That's a movie theater outdoors. And you would sit in your car and watch a movie, and they'd actually had speakers that would hang in your window. And if you weren't remembering, you could drive off with the speaker in your window. That was never a good thing. But I pulled into the drive-in, don't even know what was showing, because we were having this fight, and I was just tired of driving and fighting, so at least I'm going to stop driving so I can focus on the fight. Pulled into the drive-in, looked at her in the middle of this fight, and said, man, oh man, I'm so mad at her, but in the middle of that, I really love her. If I can put up with this, I, I ought to marry her. So I asked her to marry me in the way that you shouldn't, guys. Don't do this. I said, I want you to marry me. And, of course, she gave me the answer that every man wants to hear. Do I have to answer now? We're having a fight here. But I made a decision. And then we made a decision that she finally made a decision to say yes. And then we made a decision where to get married. And we made a decision what gown she was going to wear. We, oh, you know the list of decisions for a bride. What the, what the women are going to wear that are the bridesmaids. And what kind of the flowers are going to be. And who the photographer. We made a million decisions. But we were not married until we stood 41 years ago last week in front of a church on Cleveland Heights and said, I do. That's how most people come to Jesus. It's not one big decision. It's a lot of little decisions getting them ready for Jesus. And that's the second principle, is that evangelism is a process. Reaching people with the gospel, it it usually isn't a one-time event for most people. They've got to hear about Jesus more than one. This is a scale that came out of a book years ago where minus 10 is a hostile, hostile person, kind of like a radical Islam guy that unfortunately murdered our people in Egypt this week. And if you wanted to share Jesus with them, they'd just soon hate you. But over time, God leads them this way. And over time, you know, when they get to be a minus 3 or a minus 2, they're really open to know about Jesus. They're not opposed to Jesus. They're willing to entertain who he is. And then you come to zero point which is the time when they give their lives to Christ, and then hopefully they grow. And this is the plus 10, who is a reproducing disciple, and they they move along the scale. Again, one sows and another reaps, but God is causing the results. That's the second principle. I can't make anybody believe, but I can love them, and I can pray for them, and I can maybe get them from a minus 5 to a minus 4 to a minus 3. That's evangelism. Because God is the one in charge of making them believe. I can't make anybody believe. I can't even make my kids feed the dog when they were younger. Okay? See, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. And again, one of the things I love about what we get to do here is we do it in team. You know, there are some people that respond when I speak, and there are other people that really don't like when I speak, and that's okay, because God will use somebody else to move you along in the process. And so what I want to understand is that one person is important, and there are two principles, okay? Evangelism is a process, and who's responsible for the results? God. My job is to be faithful to be in the process. Now, as I'm doing that, okay, as I'm doing that and finding people, whether they're in my family or whether they're in my neighborhood or whether they're on my job or whether they're in my leisure world, okay, I can't do this with a million people. So I'm always asking God, hey, God, who would you have me minister to? And I really try to build an intentional friendship 
with a person that, that God leads into my life that I care about, even though if they're Gator fans and Philly fans like Chris Carey, you know? Gator fans can get to heaven. It just takes them a little longer. There's one extra layer of repentance, right? This man had the greatest day yesterday. The Gators won. Notre Dame won. Go Irish. The Seminoles won. You, any USF, USF? USF breaks my heart. I try to root for them every year, and they break my heart. I just I can't give them my heart anymore. And today the Buccaneers are going to get hammered. But Miami is also going to get hammered. <laughs> when I involve myself with people, there are three barriers I need to deal with, especially with adults. Kids are a little different because their barriers are different. But the first is the emotional, the second is the intellectual, and the third is the volitional barrier. What do we mean by the emotional barrier? We mean that there are people who have had a bad experience with something that was or was called Christian. Maybe they had a bad experience with a choir director or a youth pastor, or maybe their pastor ran off with a church secretary when they were a kid, or maybe somebody tried to convert them and told them, oh, you're going to hell. They've had an emotionally built barrier that occurs, and so our first response as we get into these situations is to love them. To say, hey, here's what Paul did. He says, so for, for though I'm free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win the more. Paul says, to the Jew, I became as a Jew so that I might what? Win the Jews. You see, when Paul was in Jerusalem, he worshipped on, on Saturday and he didn't eat any pork. He says, to those who are without the law, as without the law, so that I might win the, those who are without the law. When Paul was with the Gentiles... He worshipped on Sunday or Monday or whenever they wanted, and he had bacon with his eggs. And he goes on, he says, For, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. Those are the, the people who are very legalistic in his world. And then here's his, here's his M.O. He says, I have become all things to all men so that I may be all, by all means save some. See, here's what Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. What Paul here is saying is this, and this is important. I will do anything short of sin to get with my friend that doesn't know Christ. I will find my seeker friend, and I'm the believer, and I will find where do we have common ground. What do they like to do? Do they like to play golf? I'll make sure I play golf. Do they like to go fish? I'll make sure. That, see, I'm not trying to give you one more thing to do, but if you're out there playing golf anyway, include one of your seeker friends. You know, how about eating? You can tell I like to eat. Now, I'm losing weight because I'm trying to have back surgery. You can pray for me. I'm seeing the doctor this week, and I'll know in a minute if I'm going to have uh, back surgery. I would appreciate your prayers because I need to get this back thing behind me, and it's been going on since April. And uh, so when you think of me, pray for my back so that I can get the surgery and then I'll be back. But these are shared areas of interest, background, experience, ability, or life situation that serve as a basis for developing a relationship. And I'm sure there are Gator fans that you can minister to that I'll never minister to, even though I know Timmy Tebow. You know? I went to Penn. We are the fighting Quakers. You know how many people that went to Penn there are in Lakeland? Six of us. 
We do not have a big alumni chapter here. But you know, when we get together, it's like old times, you know. In fact, one of the other one of the one of the pen couples is they got married on the same day as Gwen and I, only years before. They're even older than me, which means they're nearly dead. Where is it that you have common ground with your seeker friend? Is it the job situation? You can get together and complain about the job. Love each other. Yeah. Is it your, maybe you're a member of Rotary? You know, you have that in common. Maybe you like to jog. I don't know, I can't imagine why anybody would do that. <laughs> you know? Maybe you have kids on the same youth sports team. What a great common ground. And you can love them and love their kids. See, that's what common ground is about. That's how we get over the emotional barrier because they know they can trust us because we love them. Second thing, along the way, I may find out that there's an intellectual problem they've got. Most adults have one or two problems intellectually with Christianity. 1 Peter 3 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now listen, there are about 15 things I know that have been taught what does it mean to have Jesus as the Lord of your heart? You've got to do this, 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 this. And all of them might be fine, but the only one that I know that's in the Bible is this one. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. See, Peter's assuming that I'm interacting with people that don't know Christ, and he says, get ready to make an offense. The Greek word for defense is the word apologos. It doesn't mean to apologize. It means to make a defense. To everyone who asks you, it assumes people are asking you. If you're in a friendship and you have a hope that they don't, imagine having no hope. Imagine going into this political season with no hope in Jesus. Imagine going into the world that is fraught with terrorist activity, having no hope in Jesus. Imagine trying to go through school and having no hope in Jesus. Imagine how hard that is for just a minute. And you have hope. And the lost sheep in your life said, you know, you're, you approach this differently. I need to be ready to give them answers to their intellectual questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? Our ambassador in Egypt wasn't doing anything wrong. He was doing a good job. And his wife and family will mourn his loss forever. Why would a good God let that happen? That's a very important question. How do we know God even exists? You're a Christian, you say Jesus is the only way. Isn't that too narrow to say? Can you really be sure you're going to heaven? Those are the kinds of questions in this study called apologetics. Uh, my wife is teaching that with the Sisters, Inc. study on Thursdays here. I teach classes in that all the time because I want to be able to deal with not only the emotional barrier, but I want to be able to deal with people's objections to the faith. Is the Bible really true? Why would you think? Isn't it just a myth? So how do you get through that? Well, you are ready. You're answering questions. You, you don't have to have all the information. You can say, I don't know, because I'm going to have my friend long after my conversation is over, and I'm going to be able to bone up or give them a chapter in a book or give them a CD to listen to or a DVD to watch. And when I do it, look at what Peter says. Do it with arrogance and pride, right? No. Gentleness. Reverence. Because if I'm willing to get through the emotional barrier by loving them, and I'm willing to overcome the intellectual barrier by giving them good information, then I'll get to the third barrier, which is the volitional barrier. Say that. How many do not know what volitional is? Volitional is to choose. And all this means is I can't make anybody choose to love Jesus. There's a barrier there. It comes from our sin nature. 
we have a distinct desire not to choose the right thing. I can't make anybody choose the right thing, even my kids, even my grandkids. So here's how you get over the volitional barrier. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. Praying at, all time, praying at the same time for us as well. That God would open up to us a door for the word. So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been in prison. See, Paul's in prison and he and some other believers in the prison are asking the Colossians to pray for them. So we need to pray for one another. And I confess to you, this is my worst area of my spiritual life is praying. You know, I have seen people come to Jesus for 30 years. Why am I just not praying and praying and praying and praying and praying for the lost sheep on my list that come into my life? I ought to have a regular time to pray for them. Now, here's what, here's what you don't do. Don't take their names and write them on a list and say, unsaved lost sheep on my refrigerator. Don't do that. They'll walk in and see it. But I ought to have their initials somewhere in my car or on my mirror or on the side of my refrigerator so that every time I walk by, I'm praying. And I'm praying, first of all, for you, and you're praying for me, that we would be faithful to be in the process of relational evangelism. And then I'm praying for an open door. And then this is the most amazing prayer to me that, that Paul ever prays in the New Testament. Pray, Paul says, of all the people that knew the gospel, Paul says, Pray that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Isn't that amazing? Here's Paul who knows all this stuff. He, he's asking, make, help me make it clear, Lord. The amazing thing is sometimes I need to pray and be quiet. It, it's not time to make it clear. It's just time to love them. But there comes a time when I need to be ready to make it clear. So I hope that's helpful to you. It's what we practice here. We're not opposed to proclamational evangelism, and we're not opposed to telling strangers about our faith. But what we want to do is be relationally sensitive. We want to make a friend and be a friend and win a friend to Christ. There's a professor at the University of Carolina, North Carolina, in Greensboro. Uh, he's in charge. Of, he's in a counseling program, and he has this wonderful quote. It says, dance like there's nobody's watching. Love like you'll never be hurt. Sing like there's nobody listening and live like it's heaven on earth. Have you heard that quote? I've just changed it just a little bit. In closing, I want you to do this. First of all, I want you to pray like crazy. Prayer is the beginning, the middle, and the end of all of reaching other people for Christ. You need to be very specific. You need to pray by name. You need to pray regularly. Who in your life, in your network of relationships, is God laying on your heart? one person, one couple, one family that you can just love. That's all our goal is just to love them. Second, love like you'll never be hurt because you're going to be hurt. You know, if, if, you are in, or if you're in any kind of relationship, sooner or later that person is going to let you down. The only one I know that never lets me down is Christ. But life is hard. Life can be tough. And any time you commit to love somebody, you can get hurt. Your kids can hurt you. Your parents can hurt you. Your teachers can hurt you. Your coaches can hurt you. See, people can hurt you, but you've got to continue on in the present because the most important thing, the most important thing is this. Our goal ought to be to depopulate hell and populate heaven. Those are our marching orders from our general Jesus. Make disciples, share our faith, pray like crazy, love like you'll never be hurt, and live like Jesus is coming tomorrow. 
I don't know what's going on in this crazy world, but I know this. We're one day closer to Jesus coming back than we were yesterday, and I believe we're, that, he, that he's coming again. And all the pieces are in place for him to come pretty soon. He could come this afternoon. Is there somebody you're concerned about that if Jesus came back today, they would not be with him for eternity? Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. And as the band comes, Father, we thank you that you've given us the incredible privilege of loving people because you love people. You love the one that is lost. And I pray you'd give us wisdom as to who we need to be praying for and who we need to be loving on and who we need to be sharing with when it comes to our faith. Father, if there's anybody here in this room that doesn't yet know you, I pray we would be loving toward them and that they would feel the freedom to come and say, hey, I need to know more about this Jesus. Father, we ask that as a church family we would be open door and not closed door and that we would be people who go to people and engage them and love them with your love answering questions as they arise, making clear the gospel. We pray for each other, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand as we continue to worship?